All right. Welcome, Dojo Universe. It is a rainy, crappy day here today. Nothing happening other than drizzle. It's not even like exciting rain. It's like drizzle. Yeah. yeah. It's doing that down here in New Jersey, too. It's, it's not even like the fun kind of rain where you can like hear it, uh, you know, bat batting down on us. So. Yeah. Sort of like Scottish rain. Sort of just always there. Not terribly exciting. Yeah. Hot and humid in Fort Lauderdale. I'm sure it is. Um, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened last week with Terry Lee. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, but I also thought that um, I'd take a wee moment to uh, talk about our new course that we just released at Dojo U. Um, is anybody out there, has anyone out there purchased the course yet? Um, the Fingerwork Fundamentals course? How about you, Vin? Have you bought yes. it yet? I have not bought it yet, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ian, um, Ian has bought it. Ian's loving it. That's good. I, I think I'm pretty pumped about it. I think it's really, really cool. Um, you can see our we actually have a little recording studio set up in my office now, um, and I recorded it with some uh, HD video. And if we get bored later, I can actually show you a sample video. I can actually upload. You used Q2 for that? Um, I actually used it, uh, but it's only as a camera angle. So we also have, you can't really see it. But we also have our rig um, that we use to uh, record uh, video onto the computer. So we actually have three different camera angles uh, that I can go between. So we go between the um, – I have PowerPoints for everything. So we go in between the PowerPoints, um, a regular shot of me, and then a close-up shot of my fingers. And, and then as I go, I can um, select different camera angles as I do it. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, so some folks are definitely uh, have definitely already purchased it. Uh, let me show you guys the links. So at the very least, um, you can learn about it and see if it's something that you'd like to do. But um, the fingerwork fundamentals that we teach are uh, totally different than the way other folks go about teaching it. And I think it provides a lot of insight. I mean, what do you think, Vin? You've been through a lot of it because um, yeah. you played in the band. No, I, I definitely think it's, uh, you know, it's, it takes a sort of a more, I guess, more the musician's approach, whereas most pipe learning is more like sort of you know, stick a practice chair in your hand and everybody just sort of regurgitates what they've been taught without actually thinking about, you know, the actual concepts behind why we do the things we do, you know. Yeah. Cool. And I... Yeah, and there's there's different ways of doing it, and I think there's a definite value to um, there's a definite value to you know different types of learning. So the and, and I don't mean it in a begrudging sense, uh, but the monkey see monkey do approach is what most folks use to learn the bagpipes, right? Which is like let me just replicate what someone else has taught me to do, mm -hmm. um, and this offers a totally different approach, which is let's piece together how things should go based on um, objectivity and rational thinking and build up a logical set of fundamentals that we can use to learn the bagpipes. And we've taught this really, really successfully over the past five years or so. Um, and that's sort of, it's sort of why I do the dojo, basically, is I believe that uh, we can use a lot more of our brain power to become really good musicians. Yeah. So, Joe, um, when you get that echo effect, if you look 
uh, carefully, you can see you're actually signed in twice. Um, and so you're actually hearing me twice. But Joe, I think I can solve that for you. Don't move a muscle. I'm going to kick you out of one of your sign-ins. So Joe, you should now you should now be hearing it a little bit better. Am I right about that? Um, cool. Yeah, that happens to me sometimes. And uh, for, I think if you double click, you can run into trouble. Just make sure you click once when you enter. Uh, but anyway, uh, the Fingerwork course is um, at a sort of really low introductory offer. So be sure to check that out. Uh, it is not going to last forever. So you get cool. lots of cool, get lots of cool other stuff. All in the now, comfort uh, of your own home, too. Yeah, it's totally, and you can watch it as much as you want, and you get access to it forever. It's not a membership, it's a course. So you get access to the materials forever and ever, and you can refer back to them whenever you need to, which is a really great feature. And the video is totally high def, so if you're like me, I've got my iPhone, and I've got the little Apple TV thing at my house, and I've been enjoying watching myself <laughs> in high definition. Um, eventually, the wife makes me turn it off, but uh, but it's pretty cool. Nice. And uh, anyway, I highly recommend it if you're at all interested. Uh, it's a great way to learn a lot of what we're about without paying for that monthly membership as well. Okay. <laughs> People are having a weekly meetings. All right, so let's, let's go back to Terry Lee. Um, one of the things Terry was talking about was how uh, the new medley that SFU is working on for this year is one of his favorite medleys that the band has ever played. And I happened to get my hands on really high-quality audio of the band playing at Bellingham last weekend. That's saying a lot, actually, because they played a lot of medleys over the years. <laughs> yeah, and Terry was really fired up about it. So I thought maybe we could uh, have a listen to this uh, for uh, the next few minutes and uh, have a listen to what Terry's so excited about. So here we go. Let's check it out. I'm going to mute my mic, Vin. Um, why don't you do that, too, so there's no feedback.
agree with the crowd there. Cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool, man. That Cameroni rant is nasty. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. What's going on over there, Vin? Is it like a... Like a well, I live across the street from the firehouse, so they have this uh, 70-year-old air raid siren. Or is that you Hello. just being like, go, oh, you watching like the World Cup or something? Yeah, exactly. I gotta get a remote for that every time I'm watching the watching game this week. Cool, yeah. So I can see why Terry's so pumped about that. It's pretty pretty slick. Yeah. Pretty slick medley, and um, yeah, it's like it, that pushes like the formula. Like I mean, you know, most of the grade one medleys these days are all kind of that same formula. You know, hornpipe, jig, slow air, stress bay reel kind of thing. That that pushes it to the limit, I think. And that's like the pinnacle almost of what you could achieve in that formula, I think. You know, when you're yeah, I mean, it's very um, um, it it is like it does fit the formula, doesn't it? Though I mean, yeah. it's uh, it's very similar to. I mean, uh, it's it's tough to break the formula, really. It's it's tough to accuse a band of being too formulaic because there's really only what two or three possible formulas that work. Yeah. Without getting so, too crazy, right? Yeah. Um, so it's pretty cool. Uh, uh, Reed's drum scores in the reels at the end are just so awesome. Yeah, it's pretty good. Tons so. of punch, tons of tons of dynamics, and uh, yeah, uh, and, and you know, if you listen to some of the other bands uh, from the British Championships, I think was it the Europeans were British, right? Over the last couple of weeks ago, um, you know, the medleys are pretty good. They're like they're really sort of they they all go for that big punch. You know, they're all good, looking for the big impact. You know, and uh, you know. Trying and you know maybe maybe succeeding <laughs> for some of them, but yeah. they're all, they're all it's, it's pretty good, you know. I'm biased. I, I'm I'm needless to say I'm biased, but I I personally do not understand what people hear in other bands relative to uh, the SFU, as it were. Like it's just set, it's at such a different level musically. And again, yeah. uh, I have a, yeah. I have a bias, and I'm clear I clearly must have my blinders on, but I love it, man. It's so good every time. Uh, anyway, uh, I digress. So um, it'd be interesting to ask the crowd who was here last week and you, Vin, like, what was your takeaway from from the chat that we had with with Terry Lee? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's it's really it's hard to argue when you know when he talks about things, sort of personal things, interpersonal things, band related things, you know, and you you either disagree, agree, or whatever, but there's no denying that final result, right? <laughs> the band comes out and it sounds awesome, and it's like, well, there must be something he's saying that's workable <laughs> for me, you know. If you're in a, if you're in a band situation, because it's it, they make it work, and the, the the product is just superb. So there must be something there, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Must be something there. Yeah, I mean, because it's been – a lot of people don't realize this, but 1995 was not the first year that SFU uh, was successful. And it's interesting. We brought up um, Ian McClellan in the conversation last week, uh, but uh, his pipe core was, was uh, at the very least, very competitive with Strathclyde uh, during mm -hmm. their reign as unquestionable world dominators. Sure. like. I'm pretty sure I, I could be mistaken, so forgive me, world, if I'm mistaken. But I'm pretty sure that they actually beat Strathclyde in 1986 in the piping. They probably the did, I think. Well, they they were yeah. third, right? Was that 86 or was they were they third or? I think, I think they, they were, were second third. in 86. Second. Second. Yeah, they were second they were in 86. Also second or third in 87 as well. I think. Second so, yeah. in 87 as well, um, mm. and 
yeah, no, I could have my facts wrong. I, I might not have my years lined up or whatever, but um, I, I, of course, was two years old at that time. Uh, so I, uh, I could have my facts well, mixed 80, up. Well, 87, 78 won in 87, so that was uh, – so they, they were second, so they must have beaten Strathclyde at some point, somewhere along the line. Um, I think in 86, Strathclyde may have won. It's 86, I believe. So, yeah. Yeah. I'd dig around for that. But yeah, I mean that's that's a track record of success that is unquestionable, you know, irrefutable, you know. So when you know he says something like, "Well, you know, the band's just got to have fun," <laughs> you know, like there's there's a thirty year track record that shows what can be achieved if you hold to that simple maxim, you know, um, whatever that means for you, you know, whatever that means in that band is obviously not the same thing in other bands, but you know, it's the, the general idea is that keep you know keeping that atmosphere something worth sticking around for, you know, and worth working for. I don't know. That's, that's what stuck with me. It was more like, you know, creating this environment that keeps people around and keeps people enthusiastic and working, you know, uh, and excited, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. How many bands out there can say that that's really what they're working for is, you know, to have fun and work hard and enjoy it. Um, I think, I think that, I think a lot of bands kind of struggle with that really basic aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I really liked, I really liked this idea about um, just, you know, his playing the pipes as much as possible. Like they don't play practice jammers, right? Just like, you know, project the music up on the wall or something and then you just have at it, you know? Um, I mean, that's why we're doing this. We're playing the big instrument. And that's why if you do that as much as possible, why wouldn't you go to band practice, (laughs) you know, at that point, right? So... Yeah, you lose a few pounds, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I've been in bands where, like, you know, the tuning of the practice chanters takes like half an hour. I've been in bands (laughs) where that happens, uh, you know, and uh, oh my god, yeah. I mean, in Orrin Moore, when we were doing our project, I mean, we uh, we never played practice chanters really, or at least very, very seldom. Um, and then we went back to it a little bit, and we, you know, because yeah, it's. Especially, I mean, do you think that's something that people should do in lower grade bands? I mean, just play on the pipes, or I, I don't know. See, that's that's the thing. Like, you know, what works at SFU is not necessarily the formula that can work somewhere else. But at the same time, this guy can produce. This has produced, you know, an unquestionable product. So yeah. maybe there's none of the RMM bands use practice channels either. Yeah. So yeah. maybe there is Never. something to it. You know, maybe there is something we can adapt to a to an environment that creates that you know, simulates that kind of environment, you know, where we're just playing all the time and not because practice channel can get pretty boring. Right. And it's, you know, I don't know, it's fun sitting around the table, but you know, as little you do with that as possible is because you're not practice channel bands, right. You're bagpipe bands. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need to be world champion practice channel players. Um, you know, and I would argue that it's like, you know, whatever work you're hammering out on the practice channel as a group, um, really becomes meaningless almost when you get up on the instruments because it's it's just transferring all of that. It's just a different kind of thing. Um, there's a lot more mechanics involved and there's a lot more to think about. There's a lot more, um, you know, and the playing is slightly different, right? It's not, you just, it's a, they call it a practice chanter for a reason, right? It's just something to get your fingers moving. Um, you know, aside from sort of general ensemble type band stuff with drum cores on pads and chanters, I don't think there's much I don't know. My thing has always been as little value in sort of 
hammering away these playing things, unless you're giving lessons to people, you know, you're teaching them how to play, which is in lower grade bands, something that happens quite frequently, right? People teach, teach how to play tunes and they teach how to, you know, they sort of go over finer points of technique and things like that, which can be valuable, you know, but, and again, it's, you know, it's a different matter when you get up on the pipes, you know, where, where, where does all that work from, you know, playing Hockham's correctly come into play once you get, you know, once you're blowing three drones and uh, squeezing the bag and all of that, you know, so, I don't know. All very interesting. I see a couple of people typing down here. One can only guess what they're typing at this point. Might I, would, I would say it's probably a common experience anywhere you go in a lower grade band where people play practice channels for hours on end before they actually play on pipes. Um, I think that's pretty common, at least here in the East. Mm -hmm. It's so common that it becomes almost like why, you know, if you do it, if you do something different, people question it, you know, that's how common it is. Like, this is the way you do it. And if you yeah. do it, don't do it that way. People are going to sort of think funny you know, things about you, you know, or something. Joe says, Jack Lee said in a class at Winter Storm that SFU spends two weeks on practice channels with a new medley, after which it's pipes only. Um, that was never my experience. Something must have changed there. Uh, well, because maybe, we, maybe with brand new material, maybe a week, a practice session, you know, one. Yeah. Two weeks is what? Two practice sessions? <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, when I was in the band, I was in the band for six years. We never did that. We just played okay. stuff uh, up on the overhead, just jammed it out. So... Um, yeah, but I mean, J Jack might also have just been stressing that they really don't use practice channels very much. You know, if you say yeah, you I don't mean, use it, how often did how often did this happen? I mean, how often did it happen where you know you didn't have any music in advance and suddenly you were expected to play something thrown up on the projector? You know, all the pipes. time. That's all like what we really. did all winter. Yeah. So um, no one actually we, ever had any sheets in their hands in advance, and they would just you just throw it up and just. Usually Terry, uh, usually Terry would email the group and say, hey, guys, have a look at this and have it playable by Sunday or Thursday or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, we'd do that. But, I mean, a lot of times people didn't get a chance to really look at it, and so we just sight-read it. And, and we just kind of got a feel for how it might sound. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Kurt says practice channel in grade five band is really needed because of the level of on time on talent once you get your tunes working playing the pipes to refine the tunes you have to get back in the practice channel to clean up your some expression i would argue kurt that that is the reverse of what you should be doing i think that you should be working on your expression while you're playing your bagpipes yeah yeah i mean it's an it, kurt that's definitely an argument i, I yeah. think uh i think that uh you know Ter terry and jack really challenged that and i remember i taught the grade four band i actually taught the grade five band a little bit as well but i taught the grade four rmm band uh, for almost the whole time that I was living in Vancouver. And um, the first practice of the fall, so like late September, we would play through some of the tunes on Practice Chanter, and then that was it. We just played pipes from there on out. Um, and it was, uh, was pretty kind of interesting, actually. Um, yeah, so, I mean, so, Kurt, that's definitely one way of looking at it, but maybe you would get a lot more. Maybe people would enjoy themselves a lot more and therefore be motivated to practice a lot more on their own um, if they didn't play a bunch of practice channels to clean up mm -hmm. expression. Yeah. Yeah, because like I said before, it's like a different it's a different kind of process, right? If you're talking about, you know, changing the way you present a phrase here or, you know, a part there, um, doing that on the pipes is really what you want to be focused on, not doing it on the practice channel, because then it's, you know, 
there's not too much going on there. So if you do it there, that's great. But can you do then then do it on the pipes? You know, yeah. um, repeatedly. You know, <laughs> over time. Well, Terry was also saying. I mean, it's not just a matter of not playing practice channels. It's also a matter of, uh, and he was stressing this, which is totally true. It's also a matter of not uh, not worrying about fine tuning too much either. Like they they you know they tune a little bit, but for the most part they get bagpipes sort of in the ballpark and then they just play together for a while and they rehearse the stuff and they work on it. Um, and uh, at the time when I was in the band, I was always kind of like, man, I really wish they would spend some time fine tuning it. But in retrospect, practice was probably a lot more fun, a lot less boring uh, when you just get in there and play and make it happen. And of course, when the contest day gets closer, then you spend a little bit more time tuning. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And it becomes easier, right? That's that's why it's rehearsal, right? As you're doing this, you, it just becomes that much easier to play the material, and that's where the proficiency is is built, right? Uh, and especially with new material like a medley that's thrown around, thrown at you every year, or a new MSR or something like that. Um, you know, you have to build that kind of proficiency, especially in the lower grade bands. I think where that proficiency might take a little longer to develop. Um, you know, if you're working it on the instruments in conditions that are going to be much the same on the contest field, then, then it should build pretty steadily, right? And, you know, and Ian mentioned steadiness and blowing issues and tuning practice, things like that. Those, all those things can only happen if you're playing the bagpipes, you know, as much as you can, you know? Yeah. Leonard, um, that, that is an awesome point. And I have speculated similar things. So Craig just started uh, some new students on the goose right away. Um, and I think, um, I think if you're good, you could set up a really easy bagpipe right away too. Um, but yeah, start students on the goose so they get the feel of squeezing the bag. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that's an amazing idea. And um, when we start our beginner program at the dojo, which will happen one of these days, um, we're going to definitely incorporate that exact idea. I challenge the idea that we need to learn everything on the practice chanter before we even think about going on to the pipes. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the best way. It might be. We'll find out. Christopher says, for the last month, we have been on pipes only, but at a recent contest, we played our whole MSR, then played to the warm-up area, then played to the line. You feel like you were played out and our placement showed that. That could be true, yeah. It's definitely possible to overplay when you get warmed up for a game. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And, and no matter, and there's no amount of practicing, right? You can practice for two hours straight on pipes every week or whatever, you know, the band, but, you know, nothing's, nothing's going to duplicate, you know, 85 degrees and, <laughs> you know, when, sitting on here's a, a question, like, Here's how I choose to approach that kind of thing, Christopher and others. Um, picture yourself practicing. At what point during the practice session would you say you typically play the best? You know, for example, I typically play my best at about a half an hour into my practice session. That's when things are going and I'm in the zone. And that's when I'm playing my best stuff. It's about half an hour in. If I go 45 minutes in, what I'm doing at 45 minutes is not quite as good as what I was doing at 30 minutes. How many people would agree with that generally? I feel like that's, you know, maybe a minute, 
or a few minutes forward or fewer or less or more or whatever. Absolutely. But how many people agree with that? Yeah, like I play my best about half an hour in. Uh, if I play for 45 minutes, yeah, I could still play, and it'll be okay at 45, but it won't be quite as good as it was at 30. Um, how many people feel like they play better at the um, one-hour mark than they do at the 30-minute mark? My guess is that's probably pretty rare. Yeah. It's happened occasionally. So the, occasionally. So here's, you know, the yeah, instrument's going really well, and things you're taking some breaks, and you're still pretty fresh, and and things are still going well. Uh, but it's exactly. a diminishing thing, right? So my point, is, my point is, if we all play our best at about half an hour in, why do our bands always warm up for at least an hour before we go on the field? Yeah. Food for thought, right? Yep. I remember playing for Jack and Terry, and the, uh, that, the same thing's true at SFU. Very short warm-ups. Very short. Even at the Worlds, the most important contest of the year, the warm-up is not more than 40 minutes. And remember, at that point, maybe you are able to still play your best at the 50-minute mark, right? Because you, you've been practicing every single day for the past month. So that's maybe how they get away with a slightly warmer tune-up there, or slightly longer tune-up. But yeah, like there's a question to throw out in the world. I mean, how many people play their best at the one-hour mark? Very few. Yeah. And, and it's surprising how a lot of lower grade bands actually do that. They don't, they don't actually spend less time. They spend more time <laughs> tuning up and playing and warming up and things. And um, I don't know. It's counterproductive sometimes. When do you get your best? When do you get your best sound? Do you get your best sound at the half an hour mark or at the one hour mark or at the 90 minute mark? I, if, if, if I'm talking about my bagpipe, I know once I pass that 45-minute mark, my bagpipe starts to acquire moisture and condensation, mm -hmm. making it much more difficult to get a great sound. Absolutely. I know that's true. And that might not be true for a Ross canister bag, but at the beginning, it's going to take a while to stabilize. So uh, people who are playing moisture control systems, <laughs> you, know, you throw a whole other wrench in the mix. But my, my point again is, why do we tune up for an hour and then go on the field if we know that everyone in our band gets their best sound at the half an hour mark. Right, right. And Ian, Ian says he suggested something similar at mini, in, a mini, in a mini practice with a few players. And they look at me like, I mean, are you, Ian, were you ta talking about like a shorter sort of warm-up playing time kind of thing? Because, yeah. you know, it is alien to a lot of people, you know? Wait, um, what? But I would, I would ask the question, like, well, what are you hoping to achieve in a longer period of time, you know, on games day particularly? Um, like, what are you really doing during that time? You know, you're not going to perfect your execution or your unison or any of that kind of stuff. You can, what you're doing is you're getting everybody used to the conditions and yes. feeling comfortable and together to go out and play. Something you've been doing every week, hopefully, for a long time, and it shouldn't be any big deal, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, and Tom has got it right. It's 90 minutes to agree with the blowing will defeat all the work anyway. Just by that time, everybody's tired. It doesn't matter what kind of player you are. You know, 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. With most, like what? in most grade four and five bands, 90 minutes is more than the average player in a grade five band will play on their pipes in an entire week. I don't play 90 minutes. <laughs> 
it's a long time. Yeah. I've played 90 minutes in the past when I've had to like do things in between, like, you know, mess with a channel read or do some switching channels around when I'm playing with channels or something. I usually see it'll be a 90 minute session, but it's not playing all that time. Definitely not. Craziness, right? I mean, it's totally great. I mean, and, and uh, I think that's what they learned. So, so Terry also talked last week about how the first few years when he took over the Port Moody band and worked with Jack, you know, they were getting their butts kicked for three straight years and you had to learn really quick, you know, what you needed to do to be able to compete with them. And I think, um, I think some of these things are what you innovate and what you figure out when you're up against it. You've got to figure out ways to, uh, to be better. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and I think that's really where it comes down. Like, and again, it's like, you know, well, maybe you don't understand what he's saying when he says, oh, well, we do, you know, we keep it fun or we keep people playing on instruments and stuff like that. I mean, but there's, you know, it's what's happening. It's like the actual content to what's happening, I think, that also plays into um, their success, you know, so that's where more innovation can happen, right? Just, it's just not about playing pipes all the time at band practice. What are you doing on those pipes? Yeah. Um, sort of plays into that as well. Uh, so it's, but, you know, as far as a structure, like a format, you know, if you followed the format, you could figure out the content, you know, for yourself, um, but use it as a template, you know, and, and just do those things, but do it in your own way. That's, you know, sort of valuable to your band or you're playing and you should have success <laughs> in some measure, I would think. And, uh, you know, if you do it, I, I think it's, if you did that and you just sort of use the template consistently, trust the program, right? Uh, it would, it would, you know, produce results, you know, you, you could, Absolutely. you could do worse, right. Than doing exactly what SFU does <laughs> or try to, you know, well, and, and I mean, you have, there is a, there is a little bit of give and take for sure. There's no doubt about it. Right. So, you know, it's true that a band that only ever plays on the pipes in grade mm -hmm. five, uh, it's true that. Uh, it's true that maybe a band that practices on the practice chanters for three hours a night, it's true they might be able to get a slightly better expression, right? Maybe. like, Or maybe a slightly better unison, maybe, right? This is true. You might be able to get that if you play on the practice chanter. But if you, if you spend way, way more time on the pipes, people are getting lots more experience on the pipes, what sort of things are you going to gain? And then I would ask you also, what sort of qualities about a grade five band are the actual qualities that will win a contest in grade five? One of the big lies that they tell you, and, I, and it's, not out of, it's not because they're mean, but one of the big lies that exists in the world is that bagpipe instrument sound doesn't really count for much in grade five. Here's how I know that's true, because I've worked with countless grade five bands, and my little trick was, I'm going to tune this band better than any other band is tuned. And I'm going to teach them how to blow more steadily than any other band can blow. And then even though other bands might be able to play a little bit more cleanly, guess which band wins every single time? The one with the good sound. Yeah, it's the one with the sweet sound that's enjoyable to listen to where people have control over their yep. instruments. And it's mm -hmm. funny. It's one of those dirty little secrets that's mm -hmm. out there. Because even on the sheets, like even in the rule books, uh, even in British Columbia, where SFU's from, they talk about that. Well, you don't want to discount too much for bad instruments in grade five because people are just getting started and you don't want to be too obsessed about instrument quality. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're not going to take away points if the instruments don't sound that good, but what are you going to do at least subconsciously if the instruments sound awesome? 
you're going to be sounding pretty good, you know, and yeah. and and the unison issues are going to be it's going to be more forgiven, I think, because they'll blend better because everybody's sounding pretty good. Yeah. It'll be less noticeable, I guess. You want to say that? No doubt about it, right? The other thing that happens is a band that's more experienced playing bagpipes more. There's a lot less panic that goes on when they uh, reach the field. Mm-hmm. So that's a big thing that all bands uh, face. That you know is the nerves, the nerve aspect. When people get on the field and they don't play as well as they're capable of playing. Right now, the people who have more time on the pipes, more run-throughs, more repetitions, more chances, better stamina, more confidence. Mm-hmm. Right when they get on the field, they're going to react a lot less poorly than people who have spent too much time on practice channels. Right, right. Yeah, and it was one of the things I noticed. I, you know, Bonnie Bray was this past weekend, and um, I was walking around. They have only grade three and four solos. So I was walking around listening to some of the solos, and, you know, you hear it's grade three and four, so you, you hear the playing that is at that level. But one of the things I think, just just in my walk around listening to maybe a handful of players in different at different tables, was if you tuned your drones you'd probably sound pretty good, at least much better than you were when you were playing out there. So, and, and you would set yourself apart from the pack of players, you know, which in a grade three or four contest can be pretty large. Um, but if you learned how to tune your drones well, and they sounded pretty good when you went out there, your playing would also sound pretty good. And yeah. you, would set, you would distinguish yourself already from, from the, the mass of players all of whom have the same kinds of issues in their playing and the same kinds of issues in their control of the instrument and things like that. Um, so you actually add something to your performance by doing that rather than, you know, have the whole thing be sort of screwed up least <laughs> or something, you know. Yeah. Would Jimmy would Jimi Hendrix ever have become famous if he didn't tune his guitar and it didn't have a good quality of tone? <laughs> what do you think the answer to that question is? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's very unlikely a band will ever be consistently... Um, you think I'll win prizes if I light my pipes on fire while I'm playing? Probably not. <laughs> Maybe. What competi- This is a great question. What competency level is good enough to try on the pipes at band? Music stands definitely do help, Andrew. Ooh. Yeah. And, and um, Terry was talking about how they throw, up, they throw up their tunes on an overhead projector. So it's nice and big. Uh, one of those old school projectors, they project them right on the wall. And that's what we always did. And then you could do music stands. The projector is better than the music stand, though, if you can get your hands on a projector. The reason being, uh, you don't. everyone doesn't have to reach down and flip through music when you change tunes. You, there just needs to be one guy up there switching tunes. That's quite literally what SFU would do. Like We'd, we'd uh, line up a bunch of tunes to try the new medley, right? And then Terry would just not be playing, and he'd be switching the music around and uh, sometimes he would um, clap or, uh, you know, hit like a drumstick or something on the table so we could hear where the beat was as we sight read. It was pretty good, very efficient. Um, what, competence, what competency level is good enough? Well, um, you know, basically pipers just have to have some ability to sight read. Um, and as soon as that's the case, go for it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're good enough to be playing the whole bagpipes and playing tunes on there as a band, I mean, hopefully that is good enough. <laughs> and that's all you need. You know, it's, it's not going to sound contest winning all the time, right? I mean, that's practice. So it's a, you know, the idea for practice really is to shake down all the stuff that you got to work through to sound better. 
Um, so it's going to sound lousy for a while and sometimes not. And that's those are the times that you want to work for, you know. Andrew says, I guess you wouldn't want to practice mistakes. But remember, we're not practicing when we go to band, are we? We are rehearsing, right? So the mistakes that you might be referring to there, Andrew, are um, things that the individuals will need to practice on their own. Mm -hmm. So in a pipe band of any level, grade one through six, right? Whatever pipe band you're in, the culture must be that people show up to band practice fully practiced and prepared. Now, granted, right. if the tunes are if the tunes are brand new, that's one thing. There'll be a few mistakes, but you know, um, when when as soon as you're done trying a new tune as a band, you say, "All right, guys, got to go home and practice this and learn this, so that it can be of good quality for the next rehearsal, or yeah. at least of significantly better quality." Right. And so, you know, it's taking that effort seriously, and I think you know, it's one of the things we didn't talk about last week is you know, when people are starting to ask questions about you know their band and how to apply some of this stuff is you know, you have to take it seriously, no matter what level you are. And enough, you have to take your efforts seriously enough that you spend the time, you know, so it is fun when you actually show up to band practice. And yes. it is enjoyable um, when you all show up together because that's how progress happens. So you need to take it seriously, no matter what level you are. You, know, you need to spend the time at home, work, learn the tunes, practice your instrument, and, and show up as competent as you can be, you know, when it comes time to play. Yeah. I like the projector idea. That's it's a, so it's a lot of bands do that. And I think it's it definitely works. Flipping music on a music stand is always a sort of a, it's always a fun experience because those music stands are not meant for the loose sheets of bagpipe music that's flying around. Christopher asks, as a pipe major, would you call out pipers into small groups to see if people knew the tunes? Um, hopefully you can see whether or not somebody knows the tunes without needing to call them into small groups. Um, yeah, like a pipe major should have a really good feel for what people are doing what. Now, you're always going to have weak players. Right? And that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad people. It means they need to develop more. And so there will always be those players that need help developing and need encouragement. Um, and, yeah, you know, so... They might not know the tunes, but it might be because they're not able to play them as well as other people. Um, but uh, I would not do that, Christopher. Now, if I spotted someone that clearly didn't know their tunes, that should know the tunes and should be doing well, that would be uh, an example of something where you need to speak privately with that person. Um, yeah. And it's a band culture thing, too. If, if it's clear that it's important for you to know the music, for everyone to sort of play together well and to make progress and to, you know, sort of uh, have fun doing it, then pretty soon everybody's going to get the idea, hopefully, that they have to learn the tunes and be prepared. Because um, it's not going to be fun if they're not, you know, personally, individually, it's not going to be fun for them. So it's kind of sort of self-correcting that way. If you create that environment where it's important that everyone is prepared, everyone ends up being prepared. Imagine that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the things that Terry also talked about is, uh, you know, I mean, SFU does concerts and they record CDs and they do shows and things like that. Um, you know, very few bands get to do that, right? Very few bands 
are afforded the opportunity to play in different venues other than competition, which has always been my sort of argument against uh, argument for uh, you know additional things other than competition being um, you know the only way we play and public <laughs> and a parade or two you know um, there's got to be a form a formula a format of, or a venue of some kind that allows bands to get out there and play music that's not you know their competition stuff occasionally because I think that just develops you know musicianship which is you know what you want to develop all the time so um, you know that's harder you know to do that uh, in a lower grade band or even here on the East Coast even if you're an upper grade band it's harder to, to create those kinds of opportunities you know but I think they're worth working for if you're if you're able to do that I mean I know some bands play the occasional sort of you know variety show of some kind here and there and and it's always a good opportunity to sort of strut your stuff and maybe do something a little different I think that that's what's important I think any chance you have to do something a little different should be grabbed and 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 taken to its full extent you know no matter how small I think so that's that's one way I would think that you could create that same kind of vibe you know uh, in your band by having these kinds of opportunities there you know consistently you know if there's a yearly gig or handful of gigs that you play every year you just, it's always a, a chance to do something like that so you know I don't know. Does anybody else have opportunities like that that they play other than competition, besides parades, of course? I don't know. If, no. Yeah, I don't know. If, yeah, like there's not so many, I, you know. I don't know how many people would, you know, think about parades as something that uh, is like a big project, you know. But right. uh, I think I think yeah. Could you make parades? Because everybody has to do parades, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I wonder if um, you could figure out a way to make parades a little bit more of a project. Mm -hmm. I yeah, wonder. I mean, everybody's used to the parade marching, you know, the pipe band marching the parade down the, you know, down the street, just playing their tunes and marching a formation. But, you know, a lot of groups, no matter who they are, whether they're marching bands, like in the schools or baton twirlers or somebody else, they always stop and do a, a, a shtick, right? You know, at some point or various points during the course of the parade, they always do a thing. Um, why can't a pipe band do that? You know, why can't a pipe band stop and play? I don't know, some neat arrangement of a slow air or uh, something like that. Something interesting that would sort of, you know, make it fun for you as a player and also be pleasing to the crowd. You know, um, so I, I think that's one way you could definitely do it. Um, and if you shook it up enough, you'd actually—I mean, that, like, it's about differentiating yourself right like why would a parade hire you again well you're the band that always does their, their show at two different spots during the course of the parade they stop and do a little thing um why wouldn't they hire you again you know yeah absolutely i'm with you 100 percent on that yeah interesting yeah joseph tartan balls burns nights yeah totally absolutely those are definitely opportunities you know of, of you have an audience a captive one usually um, you know, do something good, do something worth hearing, you know, make it worthwhile to be there, <laughs> really. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Vin, why don't we wrap it up there for today? Um, cool. I think that's lots of good stuff and looks like we sparked some interest out there in the crowd and maybe people will try a little bit less practice channels. Maybe not. 
Maybe they'll say, forget those guys. They don't know crap. I uh, love playing my cool Cox Channer. Yeah. <laughs> Cox Channers are great, especially once you get them all tuned up real nice. Uh, <laughs> there, there you go. Uh, outstanding program today, Andrew. Thanks. It's funny. Um, sometimes the less you plan for something, the better it goes. So. Uh, well, great. Thanks very much, guys, for tuning in, and we will catch you guys next week on the 102nd episode cool. of JoJo Universe. Have a good day, y'all. See you later, guys.